0: People who are working are getting more income, and that the total hours rising does suggest support for further growth in the economy, so we don't expect a double-dip recession here.
1: Hello and welcome to NPR's Planet Money. I'm Adam Davidson.
0: And I'm Khanna Walt. Today is July 2nd, and that was John Sylvia. He's the chief economist at Wells Fargo Securities who is talking about today's job numbers. And today on the show, one woman unwittingly trades her man for some money. And we tell a story where the moral of the story is that you, Adam Davidson, are wrong.
1: Well, wait a second, Kana. We also explain how you, Joffe Walt we're wrong, in
0: fact. <laughs> True, but that comes second.
1: All right, we were both wrong. Uh, that's all coming up. at first, we welcome Jacob Goldstein with our patented Planet Money Indicator.
2: Hi, guys. Today, I, ha- I have a little bit of a twist on the indicator. You know, Usually, I come in here with an indicator that sounds good and then explain why it's actually bad. <laughs>
0: I've been uh, noticing that you do that. I
2: do. So, so today, I'm not going to completely turn around, but I'm going to I'm going to give you an indicator that sounds really bad, and then I'm going to explain why it's not quite as bad as it sounds. So the indicator is 125,000. That's how many jobs the U.S. economy lost in June.
0: That, That does sound bad.
2: It's bad. You know... It's not good. Okay, we can start with this. It's, it's definitely not going to be good when I'm done explaining it. But when you dig into the numbers, it's not quite as bleak as it sounds. Uh, that's because the loss was, was driven by the government laying off more than 200,000 temp workers who were hired to conduct the census.
1: All right. We talked about this on the podcast. Those are the census workers who all got hired in April and May. They drove up the job numbers. That was one of those times where we had job increases and you came in and said, oh, I don't get all excited. Those are just a bunch of te- census workers. That was a patented gold switcheroo.
2: That's (laughs) right. Uh, So we got to do basically the same thing this time, right? Uh, You have to set aside the the temp census workers and really look at what's happening in the private sector because private sector jobs are going to be the key engine for for any long-term economic recovery. So for June, the private sector added 83,000 new jobs. Given that We've lost about 8 million private sector jobs since the start of the recession. 83,000 is kind of paltry. But, you know, on the other hand, at least we're not losing private sector jobs.
0: I am going to call that a ray of economic sunshine. A paltry <laughs> ray. paltry. <laughs> Thank you, it Jacob. It's pouring
2: rain. Right. <laughs> yes. All right. Thanks, guys.
0: Okay. On to today's show. So this is something that I actually like about the podcast, that we can kind of update stuff that we've talked about before and particularly with radio stories, you know, we can usually we just do a report and we finish it and we move on. But, of course, in real life, that story continues. And a lot of times what happens after we finish our stories ends up being really interesting.
1: And today we have two great examples of that. We went back and visited two stories, two stories where we did a report on the radio and on the podcast and then went back a few months later and found out that what actually happened was almost exactly the opposite of what we thought was going to happen. Both stories take place in Haiti. The first story is that of Yves Rose Jean Baptiste. I've always loved. I think that's my favorite <laughs> you know,
0: name. You love saying her name. So we met Yves Rose Jean Baptiste. We met her in Port-au-Prince um, right after the earthquake in Haiti, behind the prime minister's mansion. So she was walking around carrying her entire livelihood on her head in this huge bucket. She had a huge bucket of chicken necks that she was selling to people who were camped out on this lawn behind the prime minister's place. It sort of become a tent city, and Yves was selling to people living there.
1: And we learned that while Yves has always been poor, this was a level of poverty several notches below her pre-earthquake level. Before the earthquake, she was a micro wholesaler. She'd get a loan from a micro lender, she'd buy goods in the Dominican Republic, and then sell them to shopkeepers in Port-au-Prince.
0: What struck us about her, the point of that podcast, was, was that here is someone with a fifth-grade education no shop to sell her chicken necks, no car, not even a wheelbarrow. And she has this really complicated business. She borrows money at one rate and lends her goods at another rate. She has to you know, cross borders and monitor exchange rates between Haiti and the Dominican Republic. She has to keep track of it all.
1: Do you have a notebook where you keep down, I lent him this, I have this? Because you have to yeah, no, balance so that. many she figures. That. She said that she has, uh, she has her book where she has the list of all her clients. And Do you have it on you? So that was tape from our original story several months ago, and we learned that Eve Rose lost almost everything she owned in the earthquake, but she still owed the bank several hundred dollars, money she had no way of getting. She was trying to make money off the chicken necks, but that was just a few pennies a neck profit. She wasn't getting there. So we were with Jean-Palais Matoran. He's economic advisor to Haiti's prime minister. He was doing the translating and the tape, and he said that Yves Rose helped him think about something in a new way. He, he's part of the team deciding how to spend the billions of dollars that's flowing into Haiti. And there's all these plans about rebuilding the country in all sorts of ways. And he was thinking, wait a second, there's tens of thousands of people just like Yves Rose. Maybe we just need to get them money, get money into their hands. If she were in a better position to do much more business, let's say double the business, it means that with a little push, how useful could we be?
0: Adam, when Jean Palemps said that, it seemed like a really theoretical thing to say. Like, sure, that would be great. We should get some money into Eve Rose's hands so she can build a better life. But amazingly, what happened for this one woman, at least, is that that actually happened. She actually got cash in hand.
1: Yeah, after the podcast and then we did a version of the story on Morning Edition, we got all these emails and phone calls saying, how can I help Yves Rose? And, uh, you know, Hannah, this is always a tricky position for a reporter. We very very consciously are not in the charity business. That's not our role in the world. If we start getting involved in charity, it will affect how we report on stories. It will affect how people Tell us their stories, and so we we don't want to be a a charity service, but at the same time, if someone wants to help someone, we certainly don't want to get in the way of it so um, what we did was we let Foncozay. This is a micro-lending institution in Haiti. We let them know about Yves Rose. They set up an account in her name, and we let listeners know if they wanted to, that they could send money to Jose and it would get to Yves Rose. And
0: they really wanted to. They really wanted
1: to. Jose <laughs> told us they got lots and lots and lots of checks. So, I was in Haiti recently, and I wanted to find out what happened with Yves Rose. How, how, how did this all go down? So, we met up, and she told me that one day in March, she went to her local Funkoze branch and she withdrew everything.
2: $3,860. Yeah, I took it in on US currency and it was um, three thousand
3: eight hundred and sixty dollars US. Had you ever seen that much money?
2: No, mmutko no. No motko no.
3: Yes, yeah, the first time I uh, hold this month of money in 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 my hands, in in my hands for for the first time yes.
1: Three thousand eight hundred and sixty dollars. That is several years' wages for Eve Rose, and it actually her story now helps us think about one of the central problems in development economics. It's this sort of deceptively simple question: when the U.S. government or people in the U.S. or the UN or other countries in the world want to help people in poor countries. Why not just give the money to the poor people?
0: Because Haiti is this place that is full of thousands of foreign NGOs, non-governmental organizations, and foreign government agencies. The UN has this huge presence there, and their very existence in Haiti assumes that there are better ways to help people than just hand them money. That. You should build institutions and you should train people. And, you, and, and that, you know, there's all sorts of problems that will probably come when you just hand poor people more money than they've ever had before.
1: But then there's other people who say those NGOs are not so good at handling the money. And those government agencies that give money create bad incentives and corruption and they, re, they waste the money. So, yeah, you should just give the money to poor people. If you want to help poor people, give them cash.
0: Okay. So, Adam, what do we have to add to this debate? We have one humble data point. It's definitely not conclusive. Do with it what you want to do. But here is a poor woman, yves Jean-Baptiste, who was handed not institutions, not training, but cash. So what happened?
1: Right. So I have to say this particular data point is very positive in the give money to poor people (laughs) camp because Eve Rose is definitely the most responsible recipient of a windfall I've ever heard of. She was certainly a lot more responsible than I would have been. I've been sort of fantasizing, what if someone gave me 10 years of wages all at once? And what would you do? I'm just picturing all sorts of Apple gear. I think Steve yes. Jobs would be very, very happy. <laughs> you, would.
0: you would buy so much Apple gear.
1: Um, but not Yves Rose.
0: So Yves Rose, Eve Rose paid off her debt immediately?
1: Yeah, right away. Paid off the 700 bucks or so she had on her loan. And she did not use the rest on any indulgences. She did not buy a TV. She didn't buy any new clothes. She didn't even spend it on things that I would not consider an indulgence, like a house. She's still living in that tent in the tent city. She said she doesn't want to waste money on a house. She paid for her four kids to go to school in the countryside. They lived there with relatives, so she gave them some money so they could feed her kids. And the rest of the money she just invested in her business, and she actually took me there and showed it to me okay okay so th- okay. this is all
3: yours
1: all of this so you have let's see you have corn uh, your beer hot sauce okay, mm-hmm. dominican wine oh that's wine okay. <laughs> so before the earthquake her inventory yeah. was just whatever she could carry in her arms and on her head. Now Eros has an actual stand in an outdoor market. Hannah, you've been to these markets in Haiti.
0: Right, we should say that's a big deal because most people sell their stuff just sitting on a blanket with all the stuff spread out in front of them.
1: It was a huge investment. It cost around 1,500 bucks Haitian. That's around 200 US. But having this stand changes everything. She can stock so much more stuff than just what she can carry in her hands. And her customers now know her. They can find her. She's at the crossroads of two paths, which means a lot of foot traffic.
0: Right, you show you showed me a picture. We actually put this picture up on the blog, npr.org slash money. It's like a it has a tin roof that's sort of held up by a couple branches, basically, right? And it's it's got shelves in the back, it's really well organized, it's nice.
1: So what does a store like this get you? Before the earthquake, she was making, you know, a few bucks US a day. Now she makes between twenty and thirty dollars a day. Really? Yeah, which is I mean, you know, you've been to Haiti. It's not just more money. This is a different level of living for her and, as she would say, more importantly, for her kids. Like now she doesn't have to pull her kids out of school when she runs out of money or, as sometimes happened, just not feed them if she can't afford food. Now she could even send them to the doctor if they're sick. She told me this story about her aunt who had typhoid fever and was dying and she was able to pay for her aunt to go get treated in the hospital and now she's doing okay. So – Almost everything in her life is so much better now. Except for one sort of shocking and upsetting change.
2: Oh my God. Uh, um, the first thing I did, I went to my
3: husband and said my husband, look at that, I got that amount of money, whoa. And I don't know, for a reason or another... I don't know if my husband was getting jealous. He he left me suddenly. He left you when you got the money? So
1: this certainly surprised me. You know, why would someone leave just when the household got a lot more money? She explained that the power shift in the household was just too much for him and I actually talked to several Haitian friends and they said yeah, that doesn't sound too surprising that Haitian men like to run the household. She says that now, you know, she's living in this tent, and she doesn't have a man in the house, and she's constantly worried that someone's going to come by and steal from her or do worse, and she won't have someone to fight them off.
0: God, that's such a sad ending. So does she feel like it's it was overall a good thing to get the money?
1: Yeah, she definitely said that overall her life is much, much better. But she, she's really sad.
0: Adam, I'm just remembering when you met Eve Rose, you said over and over later that night, you know, that it was just so powerful to you that there is no way that this earthquake would not make her life permanently worse. You were so struck by that.
1: Yeah, I I was heartbroken and, 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 and I was exactly wrong, which I'm, you know, just good. <laughs> I'm very glad I was wrong about that.
0: Okay, now on to our second story, where you were happy to be proven wrong that things didn't turn out as bad as we thought.
1: yeah, I'd say this one you got more wrong <laughs> than I did
0: <laughs> That's true. This was more my bad than yours. Okay, so here it goes. Regular listeners may remember this guy Well first of all, what do you what do you sell specifically?
3: well, we
1: we export mangoes. Mango is the number one agricultural export from Haiti. Uh, it, Are you Mr. Mango? That's what they call me. <laughs> Just people started calling me like that. Jean-Maurice Bouteau, another great Haitian name. Jean-Maurice, mango man, had a problem. He is an exporter of mangoes. He's trying to sell them to the U.S. And people in the U.S. really want his mangoes. He, they would buy a lot more of them. But he gets his mangoes from poor mango farmers in poor Haitian villages. And those poor Mango farmers store the mangoes under their beds or outside in the sun where they get rained on. They carry them around in sacks on the sides of donkeys. They get all bruised and scratched and beat up and not suitable for export to America.
0: So we did the story for This American Life and for the podcast about the effort to solve this problem, just a simple idea to solve this problem, to build a center where farmers in one area could bring their mangoes and they could wash them at the center. And and this is important, too. They could store them in crates so they wouldn't get those bruises or marks. And the idea was this would be good for Jean-Marie's, but it would also be good for the farmers, too, because they could make
1: more money. And the story was about how, even though all the Haitian farmers wanted this center, the Haitian Mango exporter wanted the center, all these NGOs and even the U.S. government were committed to building the center, and yet the center never got built.
0: And we followed this. Our story ended with after a year and a half of trying to make this center happen, one of the NGOs quit. Just, well, the U.S. actually cut their funding.
1: Actually, Hannah, do you have the original script from the story? <laughs> no. I know you do, because you showed (laughs) it to me. So why don't you read the last line?
0: All right, fine. Okay, so the last line of that story went something like this. The two Marche staff, that's the NGO, the two Marche staff we met left Haiti a couple weeks ago. Mango season has opened without crates. And this, of course, is how you can continue to have 10,000 NGOs in a country that keeps getting poorer.
1: So now, Hannah... We finished this story about the Haitian mango processing center that would never be built on a Friday. And we sent jean Maurice an email saying, hey, you got to listen for yourself over the weekend. And he responded after we finished the story saying, oh, good news. They're going to open the mango center on Monday. And I remember you and I going, yeah. Right they are,
0: yeah but you can 't tell that story because, in our defense, I mean Jean Maurice had been saying this exact same thing for months, the first time I met him, you know, right after the earthquake, I talked to Jean Maurice, and he was saying they were going to break ground on the center the following Monday. I thought it was like something that was just about to happen. A few weeks later in March, I checked in with him and they were going to break ground on the following Monday. There were like 10 Mondays when they were going to break
1: ground. I, kept re- I keep remembering these times you would come up to me and say, hey, good news, they're going to open the center on Monday. And eventually it just became a joke between us. Oh, this Monday they're going to open the center. And they never opened the center. <laughs> so, of course,
0: it happened two days after I went on national radio saying that the project was never going to happen.
1: Hannah? I can say I saw it with my own eyes. It is true. Caitlin Kenny, our fabulous producer, and I went to Casal, the village that we profiled about 40 minutes north of Port-au-Prince, and we saw it with my own eyes, the actual early stages of construction on the Mango Processing Center. I ran into Cossack Marco. You remember him, of course, Hannah.
0: I do. He's like the local, sort of the local mayor.
1: Yeah, the local leader. And, and he was probably the single most powerful advocate for this mango processing center. He worked so hard for a year and a half to try and make this thing work. And he was telling me that after dreaming about it, working for it, one day a few weeks ago, he was there. And these trucks pulled up and these engineers came out and they started drawing lines in the sand. And then workmen came out with pickaxes and started Breaking the ground, literally. What did it feel to see that? Did it feel like, like you're smiling so big? Did it? You felt it like in your
3: chest? <laughs> yeah, it's true. Like, it's really smooth. it's like, I, I was like that, that guy who never drinks water like for like two or three days and finally have a glass of water, cold water, and finally he's like, like, ooh, the water just like, they get, I drink the water and get inside of me like like a wheel jar and everything.
1: So, Hannah, once again, we were happily, very happily, very wrong. The center is being built.
3: <laughs> we,
0: we were not wrong that the NGO went away, right? They're, they're gone. Marche is gone.
1: Yes, Marche does not exist. Although I will say CHF, which was another one of the NGOs working there, an American NGO, they did do their part. They did follow through. They got their job done. They're in charge of building the physical center, hiring the construction crew and the engineers. But Marche, the one that no longer exists, the NGO that whose funding was pulled by the U.S. government, they were supposed to do all this other really crucial stuff, like teach the farmers how to properly care for mangoes, how to run the center.
0: Which is sort of the most important part once the center is built. Um, And jean Maurice mango man told us that he is going to step in. He's going to do that for now. He's going to handle the training and teaching of how to work with the mangoes and how to pack them and wash them properly.
1: Yeah. uh, By the way, you say wash the mangoes. This is the other major problem with the center right now. The center's main function is to wash mangoes, which means water. You need water to wash mangoes. Um, And Marchévi, the NGO that doesn't exist, was going to help them with that. So Cossack Marco took us out to the side of this road. It was so hot, blazing sun. And there's all these like 19 and 20-year-old guys working all day long trying
3: to get water. What's
1: your name?
3: Jean Monique. How much is he paying you for this work? (laughs) They don't give me money for that work. Why are you doing it? Because
1: it's my neighborhood. Here, here's the deal. There's a source of water about 27 miles from the center. And there's this old pipe that nobody really uses anymore that goes near the center, but not quite to the center. So what Cossack Marco did was convince all the young men in the village to work for free for weeks in the miserable hot sun, <laughs> digging up 27 miles of pipe and moving it over. Wow. He convinced all the women in the village to cook for the those boys who were working in the hot sun. And you and I, we just talked to Jean Maurice the other day. They've done it now. Since in the, in the couple of weeks since I've been back, they've actually finished the work and they got the pipe to the center. And the center now has water.
0: And that was the job that the NGO would have hired people to do that otherwise.
1: Exactly. And so on the one hand, this was a frustrating story of the U.S. government paying for an NGO to do this thing for Haitian farmers, and then the U.S. government at the very last minute pulling funding. On the other hand, the local Haitians, Jean-Marie, Cossack Marco, and all these young men and these women, they did it. I mean, it's, it's really sort of an amazing outcome. Now, I, I will say, Jean-Marie also told us, they only have about a third of the crates that they need. So uh, the center will not be fully operational for, for a while, but at least it will start in a, he said, around four months.
0: And he's sounding more reasonable. He's not saying Monday everything's going to happen. He's saying four months. Give him four months.
1: Yes, which now I think, I believe. All right, Hannah, I think that does it for us. That's our Haiti update. Uh, as we said, we have pictures on the blog at npr.org money.
0: You can send us email at planetmoney at npr.org. I'm Hannah Jaffi Walt.
1: And I'm Adam Davidson. Happy Independence Day and thank you for
3: listening. <laughs>